we have a system for electing the most important position in the country, arguably the most important or one of the most important positions in the world, that's extremely flawed. We have an election system where voters in 38 of the 50 states are politically irrelevant in choosing the president, and the campaigns gravitate to 12 closely divided battleground states. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. I'm glad I had the chance to talk with John Koza. John is the founder of National Popular Vote, Inc., which aims to reform the Electoral College through an interstate compact so that the candidate who wins the majority of the popular vote would win a majority of the electors. He's only a few states away from having this come to fruition. John is a computer scientist and a former adjunct professor at Stanford University. He did pioneering work in genetic programming for the optimization of complex problems. He also co-founded Scientific Games Corporation, which built the first systems to run scratch card state lotteries in the United States. We had a good discussion about John's career and the prospects for electoral college reform. You should listen. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with John Koza and National Popular Vote. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Uh, hi, John. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Well, I'm the uh, chair of National Popular Vote at the moment, but uh, in the past I was um, the uh, CEO of Scientific Games, a company that uh, uh, introduced the rub-off instant lottery to state governments. And also in the past, I've taught at Stanford for a number of years uh, in the computer science and electrical engineering departments as a consulting professor. Which is a, an interesting background. I noticed on your site that you had, back in the 60s, done an electoral strategy board game. How did you come to that? Well, when I was a graduate student in computer science in the 60s, you know, students played uh, games then as they currently play video games today. There were a lot of complicated uh, battlefield games and strategy games. And we invented one that was based on the Electoral College, which was a very big topic in the 60s. As you know, in 1969, the uh, House passed a constitutional amendment for a national popular vote by a four-to-one bipartisan margin. And the issue had been debated consistently through, throughout the 60s because of uh, unpledged electors, uh, George Wallace, the three-way race for president in 68, uh, and so forth. So uh, 
the notion of the Electoral College was a, a very topical subject at the time. Sounds interesting. I was a, a undergraduate in computer science in the 84 to 88. So I have a sense of what it was like back then. What was a PhD in computer science like in 72 or whenever you finished it up? Well, of course, it was a very new program. In fact, the University of Michigan was one of only three uh, PhD programs in the country at the time. It was something that was quite new, and it contained a number of elements, electrical engineering and mathematics and traditional computer science and things of that sort. What languages did you learn? Oh, well, a whole bunch. I mean, there was assembly code, uh, numerous computers that I programmed, and Fortran and Snowball and MAD was a very popular uh, Fortran-like language uh, at the time. Yeah, I, I took a class in the history of programming languages, and I remember a lot of the names from back then. What was the path from the PhD to starting scientific games? When I was a graduate student, before I actually got my degree, I was uh, worked approximately half time for a company that printed commercial games for supermarkets and gas stations. That programming job uh, led to the notion of trying to get state lotteries, which were just getting started in the 60s, to uh, run games where the player could uh, win the prize instantly. And so uh, this part-time job that I had as a graduate student morphed into the creation of of scientific games uh, in 1973. And we went out and started to uh, sell instant games to state lotteries. How did that go? Well, it was quite successful. It was sort of a whirlwind. Uh, we started the company in early 73 and uh, got our first contract in 1974 to run an instant game in Massachusetts. And by 1975, we had uh, contracts with almost every state lottery in the country to produce these games because the public liked them much more than the uh, raffle-type games that uh, the lotteries were offering at the time. Did you have competition at that time? Because we introduced the product uh, and and were the first company that had produced a secure instant lottery that was suitable for a state lottery, we ended up getting uh, virtually every contract uh, in the first few years. And the company's still in existence today and is still the dominant supplier of rub-off lottery tickets. Did you sell it in 87? How did your time there come to an end? We sold the company in 82, and I stayed with the company for five years after that. And then I moved out to California and started teaching at Stanford. Yeah. And teaching sounded like genetic engineering and algorithms. Is that right? Genetic algorithms and genetic programming. That's correct. What is that exactly for those not in the know? Well, the notion is that uh, you evolve a large population of computer programs, starting with a population of random programs. And you run the programs and you see how well they do at solving the problem that you want to solve. And then you mutate those programs at random 
and you cross over the programs. That is, you take a piece of one program and combine a piece of another, the analogy being of sexual reproduction, where some of the DNA from one parent gets combined with some of the DNA of another parent. You do that with a large enough population over enough generations, you can solve a lot of uh, engineering problems that uh, can't be solved in any other way. What's the kind of problem that that kind of solution works on? Well, there are optimization problems. It's also used to, uh, for example, invent circuits, electrical circuits that uh, perform certain functions like amplifiers or uh, uh, filters or controllers or uh, balance or any number of other circuits. So did you like teaching that class? What was attractive about it to you? Well, I'm considered the uh, inventor of genetic programming. So I was teaching a, a, a class on something I had invented, uh, along with genetic algorithms, which was an existing uh, field, mainly used for optimization, that had a number of applications in the engineering field. To what degree are genetic programming and algorithms in widespread use? Well, they're used uh, today. There are thousands of papers every year, uh, academic papers, engineering reports. Uh, there's conferences on the topic. Uh, has a wide variety of applications. The students at Stanford, what were they like? Were they excited about it? Well, yes. Uh, I mean, the way I taught the course was a project course. So uh, they all did uh, individual projects of their own creation. And um, so that it was different and interesting for them and me. Were you carrying a lot of interest in politics? You had done that electoral strategy board game, but here you are, you know, doing lotteries and teaching computer science. What brought you back to the political world? Well, I've been interested in politics uh, since I was a college student. And the company that I started dealt with state governments. So we were very active in lobbying state legislatures to get new lotteries and in some cases running initiative campaigns to uh, pass legislation to create new lotteries. The company I started you know, was on the fringe of politics and, and government. Lotteries, as I'm confident you're aware, are a little controversial. They, you know, Some people view them as a, almost like a tax on people who are not too numerate. What's your general view of lotteries as a policy matter? I think we view that as entertainment, but uh, as it happened, the instant lottery and even the pre-existing Iraq lottery uh, in the 70s and 80s had a distinctly above-average income profile. I don't know if that's an issue today. I don't, I don't follow the lottery industry anymore. What's the sort of founding story for your current organization that you're running? It starts with my interest in the, in the Electoral College and the very weird way it produces almost random results in elections, but uh, it is intertwined with my commercial background because, as I said, the company I started, Scientific Games, was very active in 
passing legislation, state lotteries, to get state lotteries, and, and in some cases uh, with initiatives. But the immediate uh, precursor of, of national popular vote was uh, in 2004. It, it turned out the attorney that I had worked with in the 70s and 80s in passing initiatives in states like Arizona, California, and Oregon had a client who put on the ballot in 2004 a, a ballot proposition in Colorado uh, that would have divided Colorado's electoral votes proportionately. So, for example, had it been in effect in 2004, Bush would have gotten five electoral votes and Kerry would have gotten four because that's roughly the ratio of the number of popular votes that they received in Colorado uh, in that election. Now, as it happens, the voters rejected that proposition, but because I would, had been friends for years with uh, the attorney who wrote it, um, we got to talking and saying that there must be a better way to uh, run a presidential election. And we came up in 2005, spent the year researching it with the notion of national popular vote, where the states would pass laws awarding all of their electoral votes to the presidential candidate who gets the most popular vote in all 50 states. Who is the attorney that you're talking about? And tell me a little about him. Barry Fadham. Um, he's been an initiative attorney since the late 70s. And uh, I started working with him uh, when I was at Scientific Games on uh, getting state lotteries through the initiative process. And he, he's been practicing initiative law since the late 70s. And he is the president of National Popular Vote. You wrote a book together, Every Vote Equal? Yes, uh, Barry and I and two other attorneys who uh, drafted this 2004 proposal in Colorado. And then uh, a Professor uh, Zimmerman from New York, who uh, is an expert on interstate compacts, and Rob Ritchie, who's the uh, president of FairVote, which is a Washington organization that's interested in uh, ranked choice voting and, and all kinds of other elections. What did you have to say in that book? What are you advocating? Are you advocating this interstate vote compact? Right. We reviewed the shortcomings of the current system of electing the president and went through the history of the Electoral College and then proposed in the book our interstate compact and explained it. And in the later editions of the book, we've elaborated on all of these history and explanation and added answers to 131 myths that uh, people raise about the uh, national popular vote proposal. So it's turned into a, a thousand page book. One of the questions that has got to be at the center of that is, is it enforceable? Like when it actually comes down to it, if you had someone like the current president really contesting it, would it hold if we had enacted it? Well, of course it would. Uh, the constitution specifically gives the state legislatures the power to decide how to award their electoral votes. Nobody would be even question the notion that the current winner-take-all method of awarding electoral votes is enforceable. It's enforceable because the Constitution specifically gives the power to the state legislatures, and the state legislatures have 
adopted uh, at the present time the winner-take-all rule. What if they decided subsequent to the election when they didn't like the way it went to undo what they had agreed to? Well, that's just a fantasy. Uh, The Constitution also gives Congress the power to uh, decide when the electors are appointed, and Congress has specifically identified one day in every four-year period when states can appoint electors, and that's on Election Day, the uh, Tuesday after the first Monday in November. And the only exception to that is is if a state fails to make a choice, for example, if they require an absolute majority of the vote to uh, win the uh, presidential electors in a given state, which no state at the moment requires, but at the time the law was adopted, New Hampshire did have that requirement. There's only one day you can do it. There's there's no state can look back at the election returns in other states and appoint electors after the fact. So is the theory behind the compact that it would be a lower bar to enact than constitutional amendment to do the same thing? Well, it is a lower bar in the sense that uh, constitutional amendment takes a two-thirds vote of Congress and uh, it requires uh, ratification by three-quarters of the state. Our compact goes into effect when ratified by states having a majority of the electoral vote, which is a, uh, a smaller number. Right. For those who are not familiar with this, explain how it works. Well, as I said, the Constitution gives the state legislature exclusive power on how it awards its electoral votes. So what our legislation says is, for example, Delaware passed our bill recently. Delaware will award all three of its electoral votes to the presidential candidate who gets the most popular votes in all 50 states and the District of Columbia. But it doesn't go into effect in Delaware until states having a majority of the electoral votes pass the same law. So at the time when states having 270 electoral votes passed the National Popular Vote Compact, Compact will go into effect in the 25 or so states that passed it. Those states will have more than 270 electoral votes, which is a majority. All of those 270 electoral votes will go to the presidential candidate who won the most popular votes in all 50 states. So the effect of the compact is to create a nationwide election uh, of the president where everyone's vote is equal across the country and where the candidate who gets the most votes wins. And so right now, the states that have ratified it, enacted it, pretty much the blue states. What's going to get the states on the other side that seem to have the advantage in the Electoral College to go along? Well, I know some people say the Republicans have an advantage in the Electoral College, and and many of them currently think that because Trump won in 2016 by winning uh, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin uh, by small margins while losing the country as a whole by about 3 million votes. When you actually analyze what's going on, it's very hard to make an argument that the uh, Republicans have a built-in advantage in the Electoral College, even though 
many of them think that. And the fact is, uh, a number of Republicans don't think that. And that opens the door to uh, bipartisan support. Our bill has gotten uh, bipartisan support in a number of states where it's passed. And it has passed Republican chambers, uh, such as the Oklahoma Senate and the uh, Arizona House in the past. And we'll have to see how the people start viewing this last election. If you were a Republican politician uh, looking at this most recent election, you would probably be somewhat worried that a bunch of states that were solidly red for decades, such as North Carolina and Florida and Georgia and Arizona, have drifted from being solid Republican to uh, being closely divided battleground states, or in the case of Georgia and Arizona, states that have actually uh, voted Democratic in the presidential election. And you would also have noticed that Virginia, Colorado, and uh, New Mexico, which were solid red for years, have in the last few years moved from solid red to purple, closely divided battleground states, and then from purple to what amounts to solid blue. So there was no meaningful campaign uh, for president in Virginia, Colorado, or New Mexico this year for the simple reason that those states are now uh, solidly blue in presidential elections. Well, I I think Republicans are more likely to notice that they lost by upwards of 7 million votes if it was a popular vote election and that they were only about 30,000 votes short in the Electoral College and that they also won in 2000 despite losing nationally in the Gore-Bush election, right? Well, they certainly do notice that, and, and that's precisely why uh, why you have these competing views. The 2000 election depended on 537 votes in Florida. That's hardly a systemic advantage. Uh, in fact, we, we know that the layout of the butterfly ballot in one county more than enough uh, flipped that number of votes. So, so I think it's the 2016 election. But what you have to remember about the 2020 election is that Donald Trump governed his entire four years based on winning again in the same way he won in 2016. George W. Bush, when he won by a whisker in 2000, immediately set out to expand his base. And when he ran for re-election in 2004, he won the national popular vote by 3 million votes. And by the way, he almost lost the White House in 2004 because if John Kerry had uh, won Ohio, which would have taken 60,000 people changing their mind, Kerry would have won the Electoral College, even though Bush was 3 million votes ahead. So I I think the 2020 election reflects the fact that uh, Donald Trump uh, governed for four years on the basis of winning a second time with the minority of the voters. And after governing that way for four years, that's exactly what happened. Well, I'm definitely persuaded that we'd be better off with a national popular vote in most regards. I mean, you mentioned that you have a whole list of the myths. What do you see as the the biggest and most consequential myths in this area? The myths all have good answers. Uh, Opponents uh, come at this from all different directions. 
one of them is they question the constitutionality. At least some of the opponents question the constitutionality, although I would say the majority of our opponents concede it's constitutional. So there's a whole litany of objections like uh, this is not what the founders had in mind. Well, that's true, but the founders didn't have the winner-take-all rule in mind either. The winner-take-all rule, which is the essence of the current method of electing the president, was never debated at the Constitutional Convention and was not in the Federalist Papers. And only three states tried it in 1789, and all three states abandoned it by 1800. There's a whole litany of myths, uh, such as uh, the National Popular Vote Bill would deprive the U.S. House of the opportunity to break a tie in the Electoral College. Uh, that's an alleged constitutional objection. Of course, we think that's an advantage. Uh, the idea of having a presidential election decided in the U.S. House of Representatives would be a, a terrible outcome, but it's certainly not unconstitutional to uh, have a system that is designed to prevent that. When I hear sort of fear-mongering about getting rid of the Electoral College, one of the things that seems to get pushed is the idea that we'd be governed then by the big cities. That's where mainly the voters are. You know, it wouldn't be worth campaigning in the small towns, in the, I guess, at least in the swing states. What do you think about that? Well, that's, that's another myth, and there's plenty of facts. The way we're proposing to elect the president is not novel. We're saying the candidate with the most votes should win, and every vote should be equal. Now, inside Florida or inside Pennsylvania or inside Ohio, every vote is already equal. So even though uh, 70% of Americans are effectively left out of presidential elections because of the current system, the fact is that 30% of Americans, which is roughly 95 million people, live in the 12 battleground states uh, that matter. And inside those states, there's plenty of data. We have maps and all kinds of data showing that presidential candidates do not just campaign in Philadelphia, Miami, and Cleveland. They, in fact, campaign all over the state. In fact, they campaign in the rural counties almost exactly in the percent of attention that uh, those counties have population. And by the way, the big cities aren't as big as you think. Uh, the 100 biggest cities have uh, 59 million people, which is 20% of the American population. By coincidence, the rural America, which is all the counties outside of all the metropolitan statistical areas, also have 59 million people. So the fact is, the big cities are no more scary than the rural areas. This notion that candidates would campaign in big cities and ignore the rural areas is uh, factually disproven by the way candidates actually campaign today in the, in the battleground states. And it's factually silly because the rural areas have the same population as the 100 biggest cities. What's the biggest challenge for you in actually making this happen right now? Well, we have active opponents, but our biggest opponent is inertia. It's difficult to get change made uh, to pass legislation in a state 
uh, similar to passing legislation in Congress. You have to pass both houses. You have to pass committees in both houses. Then you have to have the executive sign the bill. So uh, it's a slow process to convince state legislators that the current system is flawed for a number of reasons and that uh, the national popular vote system is better. And to answer the kind of uh, objections that uh, people uh, legitimately raise, uh, but for which we have uh, good answers. Who are the active opponents to your idea? Well, the uh, most consistent and largest group is the Oklahoma Council on Public Affairs, which runs a has run a program for years uh, opposing national popular vote, and they send people around the country also talking to state legislators, arguing that the national popular vote is not a good idea. And of course, they also speak to the public as we do uh, through uh, meetings and interviews and op-eds and, and so forth. Is that a substantial organization that doesn't sound off the top of my head like something big? Well, it's a major think tank, and it uh, has alliances with many other uh, uh, think tanks around the country. How about uh, as far as allies? Who Who's helping you to move this forward? Well, the longest and uh, most consistent and, and most helpful supporters have been uh, the League of Women Voters, Common Cause, uh, and Fair Vote. As I mentioned, uh, the president of Fair Vote is one of the co-authors of our book, and the uh, Common Cause has been active right from our first press conference in 2006. And the League of Women Voters does a fantastic job in dozens of states uh, to uh, explain this issue to the public. I, I noticed you have a kind of a bipartisan set of advisors. How did you put that together and can you characterize them a little bit? Well, there've always been Republicans and Democrats favoring a national popular vote. And I might add Republicans and Democrats opposed to it. When we started, we uh, collected a uh, advisory board of different Republicans and Democrats uh, some ex-senators uh, and congressmen and both parties. And uh, we're just in the process now of adding to our advisory board, which we'll be announcing in probably within a month. It feels like with a new administration, there might be a new opportunity to move things forward, especially after such a uh, such a very contested post-election period. Does it seem like an opening in the opportunity structure to you or much the same? Well, after every change of, of party, there there is a change of attitude. So, uh, for example, uh, uh, in 2009, when Obama came in, our Republican support uh, increased dramatically, almost instantly. The very first roll call that took place uh, after the 08 election, uh, we got a third of the Republicans voting for our bill, whereas previously uh, we had only gotten a handful in a typical roll call. And during most of Obama's period, uh, it was hard to get Democratic legislatures to pass national popular vote. In fact, it passed the uh, 
New York Senate, which was Republican controlled at the time, uh, twice, but it was opposed in the democratically controlled uh, uh, assembly. And that was during Obama's time. And then when Trump won, things flipped again and Democrats got suddenly interested in passing it. And, and as we just discussed, uh, a number of Republicans concluded that that they had a lock on the Electoral College. The problem is whoever's in the White House tends to uh, be very arrogant and triumphalist and think that they have permanent ownership of the White House. And the people in that party tend to be a little less interested. I would also think there might be a dynamic in a state where you know, in a blue state, the Republicans would be willing to pass this because there's really no downside for them, right? And vice versa with a red state. That is a uh, factor. It's like many of the political factors that go into the soup. It's, it's not a decisive factor, but it is a factor, yes. What's your plan? How do you go about advocating for this? How do you move this ball forward? Well, our plan is pretty simple. We uh, talk to state legislators and then all the people who influenced them. So there's 7,400 state legislators in the country. They are our primary audience. They're the 7,400 people that the Constitution gives the power to make this decision. Uh, But of course, there's all kinds of civic groups and executive branch people and uh, academics and business groups and political organizations of all type that influence state legislators. So after the 7,400 legislators, we have the ever enlarging audience, including the general public as a whole. What are your best target states to add to the list? There's 35 states with 342 electoral votes that haven't passed our legislation so far. And we need 74 of those uh, 342 electoral votes. So we will have bills in probably all or virtually all of the 35 state legislatures by January or February. And we'll try to push them uh, in in each state. Uh, The very most immediate states of interest are the ones where we've passed one house already. So, for example, in Virginia... We've passed the House in earlier in 2020. In Maine, we passed the uh, Senate in 2019. And in Minnesota, uh, we passed the House in 2019. So we go back to the, uh, there's nine states with 88 electoral votes where we've passed one House. Those states are higher on our list, obviously, than the remainder of the other 35 states. But we're interested in all of them, and we poke around. And a lot of times it depends on just the fact that somebody takes this up in the state uh, as their uh, major project, and then that that puts that state in play. Is there anything that Congress could do, short of a constitutional amendment, to incentivize states to to get this over the hump and make it the law of the land? Well, under the existing Supreme Court interpretations, Congress has no formal role, but Congress is still very important, mainly because the opinions of senators and congressmen 
are often uh, very influential with state legislators. And then there is the question of whether Congress has to consent to this compact. Uh, under current Supreme Court precedents, it does not have to, but that issue will be litigated and possibly uh, there could be a ruling that Congress must consent, in which case uh, then obviously Congress's role would be extremely important. So Congress is very important politically. Seems like as a you know successful entrepreneur and a an innovator in computer science, you could be doing about anything with your time. Why is this the thing or one of the things that you're putting your efforts into? At the time when we started this in 2006, we thought it might go quicker than it, it has gone. So we worked on it each year along with other things. It's an important issue. Uh, we have a system for electing the most important position in the country arguably the most important or one of the most important positions in the world that's extremely flawed. We have an election system where voters in 38 of the 50 states are politically irrelevant in choosing the president, and the campaigns gravitate to 12 closely divided battleground states. And with the campaigns, I might add, so goes government policy and platforms. So all kinds of issues get decided because it will help a candidate or a sitting president seeking re-election or a sitting president hoping to put his favorite successor uh, into the White House. Government policies get decided based on what the voters in 12 states want to the exclusion of the interests and concerns of voters in uh, the other 38 states. And then, of course, uh, in the last six elections, we've had nothing but chaos from the current system. We've had two wrong winner elections in 2000 and 2016, and we've had two near-miss elections, 2004, where, as I mentioned, 60,000 votes in Ohio could have changed the national outcome. And, of course, as you mentioned a few minutes ago, the uh, 2020 election, where uh, if 21,000 voters had changed their votes, Donald Trump would have been reelected president, despite the fact that Biden was uh, ahead by 7 million votes in the popular vote. It seems to me like the origins of the Electoral College are kind of intentionally undemocratic, small d. It was designed to have some kind of intermediary between voters and decision. And you could imagine a time when it would be nice to have that, where people came to a realization that, the you know, they had voted for a criminal or something, or something came out subsequent to the election, but before the vote was ratified. National popular vote bill doesn't abolish the Electoral College. So it is true. If, if you discovered that in the six weeks between Election Day and the meeting of the Electoral College in mid-December, if you discovered that the leading candidate was the Manchurian candidate, the electors could, in theory, change uh, their votes. But they could do that under national popular vote as well. We don't abolish the Electoral College. So whatever minor advantage that has of a six-week insurance policy, we have the same six-week insurance policy. But getting back to your main point, 
uh, yes, the Electoral College was intended to be a very undemocratic mechanism because the electors were specifically envisioned to be aristocratic, uh, wealthy, uh, white, male uh, leaders in their community, not the average voter, and that these uh, wise men would get together and pick the president. Uh, That was fine in theory when George Washington was the only candidate that uh, was seriously considered for president. But as soon as there was a contested election, which was 1796, the notion of independent electors exercising their wise judgment went flying out the window, and the electors, the elector candidates, pledged themselves to vote for Jefferson or Adams, depending on which party they belonged to. So the electors became rubber stamps long ago in 1796, and this notion that the Electoral College would be a buffer against the, the mobs went out the window, and the electors are now all willing rubber stamps for the uh, uh, nominee of their party convention. One thing kind of that you said kind of stuck in my head was this idea that that an elector could change their mind in the six-week period. Doesn't that mean that they would then also not be bound to do what the interstate compact was asking them to do in the first place? Well, or the, the current system asking them is faithless electors uh, theoretically can exist uh, under both the current system and national popular vote. In fact, there was a Supreme Court case this uh, past summer where the court unanimously held that the states could require the electors to vote the way that they had uh, pledged themselves to vote before Election Day. And the court upheld the state laws requiring that. And 32 states have laws that do that. But 18 states don't have laws to that effect. And that possibility exists under both systems. It's not a very realistic concern because the electors are all party hacks. They're chosen by the parties, either because they were public officials. Many of the electors are governors or state legislators or party chairmen or they're donors to the party or they're just longtime supporters. There's only been one faithless elector out of 23,000 or so uh, since the beginning who actually cast a deviant vote thinking it might affect the outcome. And that occurred in 1796. All these other faithless electors that have popped up from year to year are grandstanders who only voted against their party when they knew it didn't matter. And there were several of them, by the way, in 2016 that did that precisely because they knew their vote didn't matter. John, is there a question that I didn't ask you that I should have? No, I think you've uh, covered um, a great many of the major points, uh, and we've been able to uh, discuss what we think is wrong with the current system uh, and why we think uh, making every vote equal is important. Are you optimistic about this happening in the near future at all? Well, we're very optimistic about getting to 270 by uh, 2024. We need 
more states to adopt this. We need states with 74 electoral votes out of a pool of 342 electoral votes in 35 states. And we're expecting and hoping to get that by 2024. Well, I hope we get there. I'm less optimistic, but I would love to see it. Um, And it was really interesting to get to know you a little bit and to hear about this. John, is there anything else you want to say? No, thank you very much for inviting me to be on your program. Thanks for coming. That was John Coza and National Popular Vote. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.